are talking about, um, well, we're in the third week of this lesson series looking at this concept of intentional living, right? Not just letting life come at you, but actually thinking about where you're headed in 2016. And today we're going to talk about this concept of blooming where you're planted because this, I've been getting a question uh, from several of you, uh, and it goes something like this. It's like, okay, so I've decided I'm going to live my life intentionally in 2016. I've been dreaming some dreams and writing them out. Uh, I've been writing them out in pencil so that God could tweak them or change them completely if he needs to. I've made some goals to sort of go along with those dreams. I've printed them out. I've put them up where I can see them. Now what do I do? Well, now you wait. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says that those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, the concept of waiting, I used to think, is just, you know, sitting around going, you know, not doing anything, basically, waiting for God to do something for you. Uh, but that's not the Bible's concept of waiting. When the Bible talks about waiting, what it means is to do everything I already know I'm supposed to be doing while I patiently await God to reveal or usher me into the future that he has in store for me. Um, we're going to talk about five things that are sort of the keys. They're the, they're the things that we, sh that we can do while we're waiting that will cause this new strength that uh, Isaiah says that God will pour into the lives of those who wait for the Lord. Now, this new strength is not strength you never knew you had. It is strength you never had. It is brand new strength poured into your life by the creator of the universe when you are willing to be patient and wait. Not sitting around doing nothing, but doing what you already know you should do so that you'll be ready when whatever God has in store for you in the future is kind of comes along. Look at it like this. If, if your great dream was to play the piano at Carnegie Hall, right? One of the most prestigious musical venues in the world, right? Very, I mean, I don't know how what percentage of, of uh, concert level pianists get to play in Carnegie Hall, but it's gotta be very small. If that was your dream, you wouldn't just wake up tomorrow, call Alaska Airlines and say, yeah, I've written this down on, my, on a piece of paper, I've taped it to the wall, now I need a ticket to New York City so that I can fulfill my dream. You know, you wouldn't get in a plane, fly to New York, get out, get into a cab, go to the front door of Carnegie Hall, knock on the door and say, I'm here to play. They'd be like, what are you talking about? You're like, well, I wrote it down. I wrote it down and I put it on my wall that Pastor Ed said that was, you know, that, no, you, what, what would you do, right? You would, if that was your dream, well, it depends on if you already know how to play the piano. If you don't already know how to play the piano, you'd learn first, right? And then you would practice, 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 practice. And then you would probably study the lives of people who have made it to Carnegie Hall and who have played there. And you would look at how they designed their lives, the practices that they sort of designed their lives around so that they could become or get to that point, right? And then you would probably design your life around the same kind of practices, thinking there's something about these practices that help get people to where they want to be. Same thing is true when it comes to the Christian life. You know, it's like if what you've done is write out a prayer saying, okay, Lord, uh, 
or, or a goal, saying, okay, Lord, here's, here's my dream. Here's what I would like to do, but I've written it out in pencil so that you can, can tweak it, you can change it, you can do whatever. Now, now lead me into that dream that I have, uh, that I think I have, that I believe will, will make me feel like, you know, it's fulfilled and filled with purpose and meaning and joy. Um, just because you do that, doesn't mean that God is going to lead you to that particular dream. But what happens sometimes is we think we think we know so well what it is that's going to make us happy that we will reach out and grab something, even when it's really not something we should have reached out and grabbed. And when we do that, sometimes it works out like this. Carl, hey, long time no see. Nick Lane? Hey. You don't still work at the bank, do you? Yeah. Kind of why I'm sitting outside here, eating my lunch. We're in the new day. Huh. You must be running this place by now. I could have. Had a couple offers. Didn't want to get tied down. How's Stephanie? Good. She's good. What have you been doing? Oh, I've been all over the map, man. I live. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I ate bat and laos. I shot a cow with a bazooka. I'm not proud of that last one. But I did it, man. Wow, sounds wild. Want to know my secret? I'm a yes man. The word yes has changed my life here. Wow. Okay. You don't want to work here, Carl. Yeah, I do. No, you don't. Why don't you take this rock, throw it at that bank, and shatter the window? No, thanks. Then ask me if I want to. Do you want to? Throw that rock at the bank? Yes! Oh, no! What are you nuts? Go to the seminar, Carl. so that I can accomplish things I never dreamed I could accomplish, so that I can become someone I never dreamed I could become, make changes in my life that nobody ever believed I could make. If that's your prayer, well then, basically the deal you're making with God is, I, I, I think I know what's going to make me happy, but if I'm wrong, then lead me into whatever future you know, the, the one who designed you, the one who created you, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, then you Take over my dream and, and point me into something new. Uh, Isaiah chapter, or Jeremiah actually, chapter 29, verse 11. One of the greatest promises you'll ever read in the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. But what exactly does that, does that promise mean? You know, you see it everywhere, especially in 21st century uh, American Christian culture. Right? You walk into any Christian bookstore, I guarantee you, just about any place you look in that bookstore, if you don't see that verse already written out on something, you just aren't looking close enough. Right? We, we, we slap it on anything. We put it on t-shirts. We put it on posters. We have coffee mugs that, 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 that have this verse on it. Uh, you'll see it on uh, sprinkled throughout Facebook and, and the, the form of Christian internet memes. You know, I mean, you'll see it everywhere. 
what I used to see when I would look at that verse is, I would see, the way I read it was, God saying to me, for I know the plans you have for you, Ed. Plan, and, and I will give you whatever those plans are, as long as you're as patient and wait for just a little while. But basically what I thought it meant was, I would get whatever I wanted. That's what I thought it meant. Not so much. It's, the, the, it's, it's not I know the plans you have for you. God says, I know the plans I have for you. No miraculous story in the Bible ever started out. And then a human being had a really great idea. And God said, huh, I never thought about that one. Let's do it your way. Right? It never happens. There are a lot of people in the Bible who are like, I've got a great idea. I'm going to do this. I'm going to reach out and grab what I think I need. And it always ends in spectacular failure. And so what does it mean when God knows the plans he has for you? What, what, let's back up a little bit. What do you think the people that heard this promise the first time thought God was saying to them? And how do you think it made them feel? I, Jeremiah writes this uh, particular book of the Bible about 800 years before Jesus is born to a group of people, the people of God, who were born and raised and had their lives in this little, this little nation in the Middle East called Judah. Um, it's in the southern part of Israel. And about 800 years before Jesus is born, a nation called Babylon comes down and completely wipes out that southern nation of Judah. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. They knock down all the walls. They destroy the temple of God. And they carry away the vast majority of God's people who lived in Judah into captivity, into exile in Babylon. And the people that were there, they thought, okay, we messed up. God told us what would happen if we didn't, you know, kind of live life the way that he told us to live it. We've messed up. We've repented. Now we're just waiting for God to take us back home. We're waiting now for God to just fulfill our dream. Our goal, right? That, that, that was their goal, to leave Babylon, to go back to Judah. In fact, the religious leaders of the people there in Babylon told them, don't get comfortable. God is going to bring us home very soon. So don't put down roots. Don't get comfortable. And so in the midst of this whole kind of thing that's going on, they get this letter from Jeremiah. This is... Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, this is the 11th verse. God says, I know the plans I have for you. These people that are hoping for nothing more than to go home. But if you back up to the first part of Jeremiah 29, this is what the Bible says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then he goes on from there to say, for I know the plans I have for you. How do you think that made them feel? I imagine that there were a lot of them that were like, seriously? Seriously? I'm, you're, you're leaving me here? That's your plan for me? Is to leave me here? In exile? And basically what God says to them is, you think you can only be the people of God in Judah? You can be the people of God wherever you go. Basically what God says to the people of Judah who have been exiled and are living in captivity in Babylon is, bloom where you're planted. Wait for the Lord. 
and he will give you new strength. He will reveal this future that he has in store for you. Now, I have a feeling that there are several of you here today that feel like in some way or another you are in exile, right? Maybe it's geographical exile. Maybe you are someplace you do not want to be. There are a lot of people in Alaska who don't want to be in Alaska. They're like, I can't wait to get out of Alaska. Why am I in Alaska, right? There are some people that are going to be here today that are not even here today. Some people listening to my voice, right, down south who are listening online, who are on the YouTube page, whatever, and, and you're somewhere else, you feel like you're in exile there. You want nothing more than to be in Alaska, right? There's geographical exile, like, which is exactly what these people in Judah are going through. There's also relational exile, you know, people feeling, you know, who are struggling in their relationships that are like, I can't really get started until I'm no longer in this place that I'm in. Sometimes we are in physical or health exile, where we think I really can't start waiting for the Lord and doing the things I already know to do until he gets me out of where I'm at. All kinds of different ways that people will feel like they are in exile. And to those people, I think what God would say is, wait, wait for the Lord. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now, sometimes he will take the people that feel like they're in exile and he will move them, he will transplant them. But until you start blooming where you're planted, until you stop waiting so that you can wait, <laughs> you know what I mean, if that makes sense? Until you, I, I have to wait before I can wait on the Lord, right? It's like I, I can't do it where I am. God would say you can't afford to wait any longer until you start waiting. And so, like I said, there are five things that um, sort of make up Five categories, I guess I'd say, of what it means to wait on the Lord, to do everything I already know to do until he unveils and ushers me into the future that he has in store for me. Five things that while I do those things, while I wait, then it causes God to pour this brand new strength into my life in ways I never thought was possible before. When I was 20 years old and I, I was in an exile of my own and I was like, all right, I got to figure out how this life is supposed to be lived. I, I really focused on two parts of the Bible. The Sermon on the Mount, which we just got done doing a 15-week lesson series on it just a few weeks ago, and then the book of James, which we're going to launch into about another 15-part uh, uh, lesson series here in a couple of weeks. Uh, they are the two things that, I mean, really, you, you read those two things, you become familiar with those Sermon on the Mount, the book of James, you're going to have a pretty good grasp on what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to wait for him. And what I did is I went through that, those two things as I would, when I came across something that, uh, that the Bible said, here's what you should do, an instruction, I wrote it down, right? And after a while, I got to where I had, you know, pages of these instructions. And then I started to realize that all of those instructions from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and from James in the book of James all of them boiled down into four basic categories. Um, now, I know you may be thinking, I thought you said five. Yeah, I missed one. A couple of years ago, it was, I, I was fascinated. I saw this article about a group that went into a church, just like any, they went into churches, all right? And they would walk in and they would say to the people like you, who do you know in this church who you admire because they are a great man or woman of faith? And then the people that were identified, they would go, the researchers would go to those people and they would interview them. They would ask them questions about their day, 
about how they lived their lives. And these five things started to come, kind of coalesce. They, they became themes that all of these people sort of designed their lives that, around these practices. And we're going to go through these five things right now. We are just going to fly through them, okay, because we don't have a lot of time. If you're like, man, I want to know more about that one, or I want to know more about the devotionals this week, go into a lot more depth about each one of these five uh, categories that you can learn about. Also, when we get to um, the book of James, we will end up spending at least one, if not two weeks on each one of these five. Uh, and just about every lesson that we do in the book of James is going to going to fit into one of these five categories. And so, like I say, I may get done today and your head may be spinning and you may be like, I don't even really remember what he said. But, uh, you know, just like every other week, right? But um, if, if that's something that you're struggling with or you want to know more about devotionals or just show up when we get into James and we will really dive down and get into depth with all of these five things. So I call them, with all uh, respect and deference to Stephen Covey, I call this the five habits of highly effective followers. Okay? Uh, and habit number one, I guess I would call Bible reflection. Now, Bible reflection is not just about reading your Bible. It's not just about studying your Bible or memorizing your Bible or, uh, you know, all of those things are great things. But Bible reflection is more than just reading or knowing or even memorizing the Bible. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Happy are those who don't listen to the wicked, who don't go where sinners go, who don't do what evil people do. But they love the Lord's teachings and they think about those teachings day and night. They are strong. Like a tree planted by a river, the tree produces fruit in season, its leaves don't die, and everything they do will succeed. Happy, strong, successful. That's the promise that goes along with Bible reflection. When we get to James chapter 1, and James is going to talk about this too, which means we'll be talking about Bible reflection here in about three or four weeks. When James gets there and he talks about Bible reflection, he adds blessed. Happy, strong, successful and blessed. I mean, who, if I went on TV and said, hey, I can tell you the secret to living a life that is happy, successful, blessed, and strong. How, mu how, much, how much money do you think I could get people to send to me? And then I just send them this scripture. Here you go. <laughs> can you imagine? What are you talking about? It's like, it's not a secret. It, it, God tells us over and over and over again. Now, I could spend all day talking about just this one, but here are the three components of Bible reflection. We will get much more deeply into this in a couple of weeks. I go into it a lot deep, more deeply in the devotionals this week. But Bible reflection means I open my Bible, I read it. I look for my reflection in the Bible as I'm reading those words, right? Do I see something about me that I need to change? Do I see, do I see myself in the words that I'm reading? If I do... Well, then I reflect on that. I, I spend the day thinking about that. What would that mean? What would my life look like if I incorporated that, what I saw reflected in the Bible, if I, if, I saw, if I incorporated that into my life? And then once I've reflected on that, then I do my best to reflect that to the world. So there's these three parts, right? I, I look for my reflection in the Bible, I reflect on what I read, and then I do my best to reflect that to the world. You do that, happy, strong, successful, blessed. Okay, this is really important. Second habit of highly effective followers of Jesus has to do with community. It's practice community. Um, the, 
Bible word for this is fellowship. And we don't use that word very much in 21st century America unless you are a Lord of the Rings fan, right? If you are a Lord of the Rings fan, then you know all about what a fellowship is. And rather than spend five minutes trying to explain that, I thought we might just watch this. I will take the ring to Moldor. anywhere without me. No, indeed, it is hardly possible to separate you even when he is summoned to a secret council. You are not. Wait! We're coming too! That stud is all tied up in a sack of stuff. Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission. Quest. Thank you. Well, that rules you out. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 10 says two people are better than one. One falls down, the other can help him up, but it is bad for the person who is alone and falls because no one is there to help. Now what happens sometimes is we'll be talking about this concept of fellowship and somebody will say, well, I don't need any help. I don't want any help and I don't need any help. I can take everything that life throws at me by myself, which even if that were true, it's not. We could spend all day talking about I get calls from people every week who have thought that that was true of them and then something happens and they fall down in some way and there's nobody there to help and they are calling every church in town just hoping that they can find somebody that can help them up. And, but even if it were true, all right, let's say it was true. I don't need any help. I can handle life by myself. I guess my response would be, what makes you think this is just about you, right? It's not just about you. 
Yes, God wants there to be someone there to pick you up when you fall, but he also wants to use you to pick other people up when they fall. And it is all part of, of waiting on God. This practicing community, it is a practice, a discipline, I guess you could say, that you need to, to, to incorporate into your life if you are going to, if you're going to wait on God in such a way that he pours this brand new strength into your life that we all want, that we all so desperately seek. This goes uh, hand in hand with this next uh, habit of highly effective followers of Jesus, and that is to invest in other people, okay? Invest in others. And this is a little different. If, if practicing community, if the Bible word for that was fellowship, then this one, the Bible word for that would be service, okay? Uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 4, the Bible says, Just as there are many parts to our body, so it is with Christ's body. We are all parts of it. It takes every one of us to make it complete. For we each have different work to do. So, we belong to each other and each needs all the others. See, again, this is not, this is not optional, okay? This is something that, that God created you this way and everybody else this way so that together we could, we could accomplish the things that he has put before us. You know, I love in, in the clip we just watched where... The guy from Gondor says, you hold the fate of the world in your hands, little one. And I think sometimes we, we underestimate what the purpose of our lives on this earth is. And while it's not quite the same as having the one true ring and needing to throw it into the, you know, into the, into the lava, the fate of the world, to a certain extent, it does. rests on your shoulders. It rests on my shoulders, and we, we all need each other, and we all belong to each other. And the place I see this working out the most powerfully, where it's like you can see, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, it is so important to invest in other people, is in recovery, right? If you've ever been an addict, and you go to any kind of a meeting, the first time you go to a meeting, what do you do? You look around at all these people that have more sobriety under their belts than you could even imagine getting, right? Some people have a couple days, some a couple weeks, some months, years. There are some people that will be like 30 years sober today. It's like, whoa, how does that even happen? They just must be strong people, right? I, I could never be that strong. But see, you're wrong. You could be. Those people that have 30 years of sobriety, there was a day where they walked into a meeting the first time and sat down and looked around and all these people with all this sobriety under their belts, and they thought, I could never do that. I could never be that person. That person's just strong. But see, then what happens is that somebody invests their life in you, and they pour their life into you. And as you start to move forward down that, I guess you could call it the road to recovery, as you move down that road, pretty soon you start to realize part of what makes them strong is that they're investing their life in somebody else. I run into a lot of people that have come through this church that have been through recovery programs and I will meet them like, you know, in Anchorage or here and wherever other people will be like, Pastor Ed, how you doing? And it's like, I'll always ask them, how are you doing? You can kind of tell when you look at them, right? You can kind of tell, but I'll say, how are you doing? And uh, I'll get either awesome, right? Great. Or mm, not so good. Or sometimes it's like, you know, but I start asking them questions. 
And usually, if they're doing great, they have made their lives about more than just themselves. And if they're not, they haven't. Because really, that's what addiction is, right? It's when, I mean, it's, it's most basic definition, and it gets to its worst point. It's when I've made my life about nothing more than me. It's, it's a dead end. But when you invest your life in others, you practice community, it opens up all kinds of power. It's that, that new power that God pours into our lives when we practice the things that he says to practice. Okay, that leads to our fourth one, practicing generosity. Okay? And generosity is about more than just money. I know that in church, usually, that's what we talk about when we talk about generosity, right? But it's only a small part of what the Bible talks about when it talks about generosity. You have so many other things you can be generous with. You can be generous with your time, with your energy, with the things that you own that have nothing to do with giving people cash, but you can, you can be generous with those things to other people. You can be generous with your words, with your thoughts. You can be generous with your facial expressions, okay? I remember the first time I heard somebody say that smiling at people could be a ministry. I thought, well, how can that be a ministry? I mean, what, what are you talking about? And then I started to realize how, how people look at each other when they're out in the world. This room right here, your facial expression when you look at other people in this room has probably more power than any other time that you, that you look at anybody else anywhere else. Because there are people that when they walk through that door for the first time, they are terrified. Everybody, that the, the sinner, the heretic alert is going to go off, right? And everybody's going to turn around and look at them, you know, whole children of the corn moment, right? And they think that all of you people are so clean and so perfect that they would never fit in here. They just don't know you well enough yet, right? But they don't know that yet. They walk in, and if you scowl at them... They think God just whispered into your ear what everything they've ever done. And they're like, <gasps> you know what I mean? They, they may not be showing it on the outside, but your, your facial expression, you can be generous with that. Smile. Smile at people. Make them feel welcome. Practice generosity. Jesus says this in John 6. Oh, that's getting ahead. Got ahead of myself. Luke 6, verse 38. Give and you will receive. You'll be given much. Press down, shaken together, running over, it will spill into your lap. The way you give to others is the way that God gives to you. So practice generosity. And then the fifth one, this is the one that I hadn't thought of in terms of an instruction, but people that are great men and women of faith seem to develop this, and that is developing sensitive calluses. Uh, now, I know that sounds like a strange thing to say. Calluses are places where we, we toughen up, right? How do you have a sensitive callus? We'll talk about that at least twice when we get to James, all right? But this is all about how you handle pain. Do, do you let pain crush you? Or in order to make sure pain doesn't crush me, do you make yourself so hard that you become brittle and rigid and unyielding? And what the Bible says is you've got to find another way, a way to to accept that pain is part of this life, but not to let it crush you, not to let it make you so hard that nobody can get through to you or that you can't get through to anybody else. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I told you these things so that you can have peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble, but be brave for I have defeated the world. See, here's the thing. He never promises you don't, won't have to go through trouble. He just promises you won't have to go through it alone. He promises that if you walk with him, 
then you walk with the one that can do things like turn crucifixions into resurrection, right? At the crucifixion, his disciples looked at that event and said, nothing good could ever come from this. And then three days later, they found out they were wrong. That what looked like the greatest display of spiritual weakness and the greatest catastrophe that had ever happened on the face of the earth was turned into the greatest thing that had ever happened on the face of the planet. And that's who is who wants to walk through this world with you. And if you do that, you'll develop sensitive calluses. Okay, I, I know that it may, may not be making a lot of sense, but it will, okay, as we go through the book of James. And if you want to know more, pick up a devotional. But let's end today kind of where we started. Go ahead and put Jeremiah 29 back up there. This is God's promise to you, right? Even to you who feel like you're in exile. The people that this was written to originally, remember God said to them, bloom where you're planted. And so they did. They bloomed where they were planted. And over the next 800 years, what happened is that part of the world became a battlefield. First Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Greece, and Alexander the Great. Then when Alexander the Great dies, all of his generals are fighting over that area. Finally, the Romans come in. What ends up happening is all of these, these, these pockets of the people of God. It's like, have you ever played pool and you go to, to, to break and you hit the cue ball? And it hits that bunch of balls there at the other end and off go the, the pool balls, right? That's sort of what happened to the, these pockets of the people of God in exile. They were spread throughout the world from, from India to Spain, from Egypt to up into what's now Russia. They were everywhere, and they all longed to go back to Judah. And 800 years later, this little baby was born in the nation of Judah. His name was Jesus. And he grew up, and he lived his life, and he died, <laughs> resurrected, went back to heaven, and left this group of 120 people in Judah who he called the church. And this 120 people grew to what some scholars think was probably about 200,000 followers of Jesus within just a few years. And they all stayed right there in Judah, living the dream that every other, uh, all the other people of God that were scattered throughout the world dreamed of, of, of having what they had until the persecution started until the execution started. And then it was like that little group, or not so little group of Christians, it was just like that breaking in pool. They were scattered throughout the world. And you know where they went? They went to these little gatherings of the people of God, wherever, wherever there were human beings in this world, there were pockets of Jew. Babylon's plan, when they, when they took all the Jews into captivity, was to assimilate the Jews into the kingdom of Babylon. God's plan was to assimilate every other nation into his kingdom. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. These Christians go to these pockets of God's people everywhere, and they hear about this man named Jesus who lived and died in the land they all dreamed of, and the world exploded. All because the people of God, that there were people of God who were willing to wait even if they felt like they were in exile, and to bloom where they were planted. I don't know what kind of exile you feel like you're in right now. You can't afford to wait to wait. Does that make sense? Bloom where you're planted for God's sake and for your sake. Bloom. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for 
for this new strength that you have ready to pour into our lives if we would just wait for you. So Lord, help us to see what it is that you are asking us to do. Help us to see it clearly so that we can, when the time comes, move into whatever future plan you have in store for us. And until then, Lord, we'll be waiting. In Jesus' name we pray.